2: this episode
0: contains details of gun violence please take care where and when you listen
3: it's a friday night in the fall of 2018 in east portland oregon odell adams heads to the speakeasy lounge for a drink it's a stressful time for him His mother is losing her battle with cancer.
4: My mom was a very strong woman. She um, took care of all of us by herself. I watched her struggle, but still, like, made things happen for us and still provided and still did everything. And she always wanted the best for us, actually, when we was little, and did everything that she could.
3: Odell grew up in a tough neighborhood. He was charged with his first crime as a kid at age 13
4: they was treating me like a grown-up. Like, I can actually remember a time where, like, an officer, like, went in my drawers, actually looking for crack. I was, like, what, like 12, 12 years old. It became, like, regular for me. Okay, here come the cops. Okay, well, they, they gonna do this, and they gonna do that.
3: His older sister, Sharnisa, remembers this time for Odell was hard.
5: I don't want to say he kind of fell through the cracks, but he was more so looking for a community. And, you know, the neighborhood that we eventually moved to, it had a lot of mentors, a lot of gang members, I would say. But for the young folk, it was their community. He was a very wise kid and very strong and a, very protective, you know. And so maybe he felt at that very young age that he had to prove himself.
3: But Odell is looking to move past all that, to rebuild his future. And at around 10.30 p.m., he's standing outside the bar talking with a couple of buddies when a gold Buick pulls into the parking lot. Surveillance footage shows the driver interacting with Odell and his friends. The driver of the car backs up, parks about seven spaces away from Odell's group, and goes into the bar. Then Odell can be seen walking away. Attorney John Robb.
6: Odell walks off the camera that's facing north towards the sidewalk, towards the street, and basically into the blackness and off the camera. Within a few seconds, there's a figure, an indistinct figure that enters the south-facing camera. And the most that you can tell is the person's wearing white shoes.
3: Then, gunshots. A couple of bullets hit the Buick. Some hit an SUV nearby. Others hit the building. Some even went over the roof. Luckily, nobody is injured. Whoever fired the shots flees. Witnesses, call 911. Here's the audio from one of those calls.
0: I just saw a shot fired uh, towards me. And you're at what corner? Sorry, I'm still shaking right now. That's okay. Now. Take uh, a deep breath and tell me what corner you're at. and start. At and start. Did um, you see who shot at you? I did not. And could you see the gun? Uh,
7: I did not, but I saw the muzzle flash.
3: The caller tells the dispatcher he didn't see the shooter's face, but could describe what the person was wearing.
7: Black pants,
0: black hoodie, white shoes. Okay, and Um, who did this? What was the subject? He was white male, black male? What? Was he white, black, Asian, or Hispanic?
7: I could not tell. It's dark.
3: Because Odell walked out of the security camera range just before the shooting started, police target him as a suspect even though he was wearing a completely different outfit.
6: He had a matching camouflage jacket, camouflage pants, a black baseball hat, a white t-shirt, and these bright white, kind of clean shoes.
3: Police recover 10 40 caliber cartridge casings from the bar's parking lot. About a month later, at 4 a.m., they come for him. Police are outside Odell's mother's home, where he is living, detonating two flash grenades. Through a loudspeaker, they order everyone in the house to come out with their hands up. Odell and Sharnisa's mother had just passed away
5: a few days earlier. Thank God that she didn't have an effing squat team busting her door while she's sick and in bed. I thought I was dreaming at first, actually,
4: when I heard this big bomb, like um, a little flash bomb or something. So then I hear them outside saying, "Come out with your hands up, woo," and, and and all this other stuff. So we came out. You know what I'm saying? Like me and my brothers and sisters and stuff. We came
3: out. Police search the house and find two 40-caliber handguns in an attic crawl space and ammunition in a downstairs dresser. Odell is arrested and misses his mother's funeral. Only one of the two guns found at the home has his DNA along with DNA from three other people.
6: If you can create that link, you can link the firearm to the shooting, you can link Odell's DNA to the firearm, and you can combine that with the surveillance video that appears to show Odell walking off one screen and then onto the next screen and firing all of the shots. From the prosecution standpoint, you have a pretty clear-cut case.
3: Investigators send the gun with the DNA to a firearms examiner for analysis. That analysis will result in more than one bitter legal battle, two different verdicts for the same crime, and more years of Odell's life wasted in the system. I'm Molly Herman, and this is CSI on Trial.
6: Two or three stains are really not enough to call something an impact spatter from gunshot that's going to put someone in prison the rest of their life. You
0: thought that making up a lie was going to get you home sooner?
5: That's what they told. What is it about a bite mark that would make a dentist an expert in this area?
7: Sir, did you Um, see who shot at you? I did not.
5: He said, I will sit in this jail and I will rot before I take a plea bargain.
7: The problem with forensic
3: science in the criminal legal system today is that it's an awful lot of forensic and not an awful lot of science. Today's episode, Firearms Analysis. Firearms Analysis got its start in a now infamous criminal case. It was even made into a movie.
8: On the flaming battleground called Chicago
3: we
2: got a nice valentine all ready to
3: deliver. <laughs> a
9: valentine for Bugs. <laughs> Say, Jack, just make sure it's a great big red
4: valentine, huh?
3: <laughs> On February 14th, 1929, during Prohibition, Chicago gangsters led by Bugs Moran are waiting for a shipment of Canadian whiskey when they're gunned down by men dressed as police officers. It's now known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Seventy shells were recovered at the crime scene. More than 40 bullets and fragments were extracted from the victims.
8: I'm Keith Brown Morris. Well, that's a bit formal. Keith Morris.
3: Keith is a professor in forensic and investigative science at West Virginia University.
8: In the late 20s and early 30s, um, there was a group in Chicago that did work on the scientific investigation of crime. And one of the leaders would be Calvin Goddard. Eventually, you know, he, he joined this group and he promoted it very extensively. They worked on the, uh, the Valentine Day massacre and these kinds of cases. So, in the American context, he was very sort of preeminent in the development of firearms examination.
3: Dr. Calvin Goddard was an Army colonel and forensics pioneer. He had recently overseen the invention of a key piece of technology.
8: They developed the comparison microscope, which is used by firearms examiners today to do comparisons, which is basically two microscopes which have a common optical bridge, which allows you to look at two objects simultaneously in a single view.
3: When police discovered a cache of Thompson's submachine guns belonging to an associate of Al Capone's, Goddard declared them a match to the casings and bullets from the scene of the massacre. The high-profile case lent credibility to the growing discipline, and just like other forensic methods we've talked about before, it developed as a part of law enforcement.
8: And then it became the development of police officers who took this over, and they sort of developed it further and further, and it became sort of widespread in the nation.
3: Goddard went on to lead his field, coining the term forensic ballistics, training police departments and advising the FBI on the establishment of their crime lab. So how does firearms analysis work? It starts with a loaded gun and a cartridge casing.
8: You can think about a cartridge case as the housing that contains the bullet and the propellant in order to to expel it out of the firearm.
3: When a gun is fired, the bullet is often lost, but the cartridge casing that held the bullet is kicked out of the side of the gun.
8: Finding bullets is a lot more difficult. You can imagine if you were in an area where it was open and there's not something that's been struck, then you might not find that bullet. But the cartridge cases are going to be located somewhere close to where the shooter was standing, so we have a far greater likelihood of obtaining cartridge cases from the crime scene.
3: The theory behind firearms analysis is that no two guns are exactly identical and that every gun imprints a unique set of marks onto the ammunition it fires.
8: So the typical approach would be if, for instance, we get cartridge cases from a crime scene and then at some point a detective might come across a suspect who may have a firearm then the firearm would be provided and we would make test fires from that particular firearm. And so those test fires would be unknowns. We know that firearm X leaves these kinds of marks. Then we would compare those cartridge cases to the ones that were fired from the crime scene and see if we find any features which are in correspondence to that which we typically would find from cartridge cases fired from the same gun and also the similarity between cartridge cases fired from different guns.
3: Those comparisons would lead to the examiner concluding whether or not the cartridge case was fired by a specific firearm. The evidence isn't always clear.
8: You might get cartridge cases for whatever reason, um, don't have very good markings on them or they might be damaged, and the firearms examiner is not in a position to actually say whether it came from the same gun or a different gun. So we would call those an inconclusive result.
3: Today we have more than a century of precedent for firearms examination evidence being admitted at trial.
2: Firearms and tool marks is probably one of the most common pieces of evidence in the United States.
3: You met Julia Layton in episode one. She's the former general counsel for the Public Defenders Service in Washington, D.C.
2: It impacts A large, large number of cases,
3: and typically cases that carry serious penalties. But recently, a D.C. murder trial challenged that precedent.
9: I could write a dozen articles on the weaknesses of firearms that would not have the impact that testifying in one case and getting a good decision from a judge has had.
3: So the case, now challenging the precedent of firearms analysis in court, begins on a November afternoon in 2016. From the top of the street in southeast Washington, D.C., you can see the Washington Monument. It's there, next to a low-rise apartment building, that Orlando Silver is shot to death. A police officer spots a man running from the scene and tossing a gun into a wooded area. This suspect is identified as 24-year-old Marquette Tibbs. Tibbs, a marijuana dealer and business associate of the deceased, is arrested and charged with murder. Police recover the gun. A forensic examiner fires it and compares that cartridge with those recovered from the crime scene. Their conclusion? The gun and the casings from the scene are a match. In a pretrial hearing, Marquette Tibbs' public defenders argue that there is no scientific basis for claiming a precise match, and therefore the judge shouldn't allow that testimony. That's the Daubert standard, which we talked about in episode one. For their part, the prosecution offered up research studies they said could back up the validity and reliability of firearms analysis. Nicholas Skurich has analyzed dozens of these studies, and he testified about his findings at the hearing.
7: I'm a professor of psychology and criminology at the University of California at Irvine. In order to understand the value of a firearm examiner testifying in court that two bullets are a match, an identification, you need to know both how accurate they are at calling identifications when the bullets, in fact, came from the same gun, but you also need to know that false positive rate, how often The examiner gets it wrong when the two bullets, or cartridge cases, were not fired by the same gun.
3: He found a lot of problems. First, in many of these studies, participants were sent two groups of cartridges that had been fired and asked to sort them into matched pairs.
7: So you could kind of analogize this to a a jigsaw puzzle, right? You're kind of putting the pieces together and figuring out which piece goes where. Now, from a pure scientific standpoint, that's not a very good study design in the sense that they're able to exploit this design to increase their accuracy. So you could look at two of the unknown bullets and say, well, these came from the same gun. And then you could compare one of those unknown bullets to a different known bullet. And if those are a match, then you know by implication the other unknown bullet is also a match.
3: Basically, the process of elimination could conceivably help them get more correct answers. In 2014, the Ames Lab, a national laboratory affiliated with Iowa State University, tried to resolve that issue with another
7: study. Participants were given a coin envelope with two cartridge cases, and they were simply asked, did these cases match or not? And the participant makes a decision and then puts those cases back in that coin envelope. So it's a much cleaner test of whether a firearm examiner can look under a microscope and determine whether or not two bullets or cartridge cases were fired by the same gun.
3: That makes sense, but it turns out this one had its own issues. Not only could participants mark identification for a match or elimination for a non-match, They could also choose a third option, inconclusive.
7: About 20% of the participants responded inconclusive to every single one of those comparisons. So this wasn't, oh, a few of them are inconclusive or not. This was every single response was inconclusive. And then to make things worse, this particular study counted those responses as correct responses.
3: Counting inconclusives as correct made the examiners seem very accurate. But count inconclusives as incorrect, and it's a whole different story.
9: The error rate goes from under 1%, which is the way it was calculated by Ames, to about 33%.
3: That's David Fegman from UC Hastings Law School. You met him in episode one, and he also testified in the Tibbs hearing
9: have a seven-year-old granddaughter, and I said, you know, if you have a math test, you have 10 questions, and you answer, I don't know, or inconclusive, but if you answer, I don't know to one of the questions, do you get credit for that? And she looked at me strangely, she's a smart seven-year-old in second grade, and she said, well, no, that's wrong. And so what a seven-year-old understands, the researchers at the Ames Laboratory don't understand.
3: Despite this pretty major flaw, The study was used as proof that firearms identification is scientifically valid. Then there was a follow-up study to examine the issue of reliability. Just to quickly explain, validity looks at how accurate a test is. Reliability looks at how consistent it is. Will I drive a full block with the parking brake on if someone else parked the car and put it on? Every single time, that's reliability. So this was testing whether or not you can get the same result multiple times. Participants were mailed sets of cartridge casings to examine, and what they didn't know was that they got the same sets twice. So if their analysis was reliable, they should reach the same conclusions both times they examined the same sets. But that didn't happen.
7: The examiners were reaching the same conclusion about 65% of the time. And importantly, this doesn't mean they reached the correct conclusion 65% of the time. It only means they reached the same conclusion 65% of the time.
3: These studies are widely used to support firearms analysis, even though none of them have ever been published in an independent, peer-reviewed scientific journal, the recognized standard for evidence-based research. Back to that pretrial hearing... After all this was presented in the Marquette-Tibbs case, a D.C. Superior Court judge refused to allow testimony that the cartridge from the crime scene was a match to the gun found in the wooded area. And Tibbs, who had maintained his innocence, was found not guilty of murder. Julia Layton says cases like Tibbs doesn't mean we should throw the method out altogether.
2: We're not suggesting that firearms examination evidence disappears altogether. There are objective standards for class characteristics. There are objective standards that are laid out by manufacturers that can allow a firearms examiner to objectively say that the evidence found on the crime scene was fired from a a make and model of gun with a square firing pin. What we're suggesting is that the science isn't there for a claim that they can identify the source. And that what recent studies have been done suggests that there may be very, very high error rates when they make that claim.
3: While new precedent is being made in the Tibbs case, Odell Adams, the man you heard about at the beginning of this episode, is still waiting for his day in court. It's now 2020. Odell Adams has spent two years in jail since his arrest, just waiting for his trial. The delay was first due to some issues with legal representation, and then COVID.
4: I've lost everything, actually, due to this situation. I lost my apartment. I lost my job. I lost going to see my mother, being buried, and just a whole lot of stuff was just, like, heavy on me during that time.
3: It's common in cases like Odell's, when a felon is charged with possession of a firearm, that federal prosecutors take the case over from the state. Since the age of 16, Odell had a seemingly endless series of run-ins with the law. He'd been pulled over and charged with 50 traffic violations, mostly things like driving without insurance or a suspended license. He had 15 different felony charges that were either eventually dropped or where he was found not guilty. He was convicted of a drug felony and a felony for threatening assault and then possession of a gun as a felon, which put him on supervised release during the time of the incident at the speakeasy lounge. His record put him on the investigation's radar, and that's also why federal prosecutors wanted to take over the case. Those prosecutors might have assumed it would be an easy win. Defense attorney John Robb.
6: From the prosecution perspective, it's kind of an open-and-shut case. You have the video showing Odell walking off the screen, somebody wearing white shoes, which Odell was wearing, walking onto the other screen. You find this firearm where he was living, and you have forensic evidence that ties that firearm to the shootings. You still have that witness there that describes somebody wearing different clothing. But the idea that that person just got it wrong um, becomes a lot easier to stomach when you know that there's something that is connecting the firearm found down the hallway from the bedroom that Odell was living in to the firearm found at the scene. It'd be an awful coincidence for some other shooter to happen to have done that.
3: But the key evidence are those casings found outside the speakeasy lounge. Do they match those test-fired by the gun found at his mother's house? First, they run a computerized analysis, and it says no match. The speakeasy evidence was not created by the gun.
6: So at that point in the investigation, the investigators assumed that there wasn't a match. And it's not quite clear what happens at this point. The case doesn't get dropped. The case doesn't go away. In about four to six months, they come to believe that there's been some error in that initial process. And then they redo that process... The computer gives a different result at this point. At this point, the computer says that they actually do match.
3: The computer test is followed by a comparison performed by a human examiner, which is pretty common. Using a comparison microscope, the technology that's been around since the 1920s, the examiner determines that all the cartridges found at the speakeasy lounge had been fired by the gun from Odell's mother's attic. Federal prosecutors had their case they offer Adams
5: a plea deal.
4: I was like, no way. I'm not accepting something that
5: I didn't do. I'm like, bro, take the plea. He's like, I'm not taking, that's where they get you, that's where you get tired, and you know? And so he's super strong. I, I sit back and reflect with him now, like, wow, you're so freaking resilient. Like, cause we're saying, we just want you home. And you're saying, I didn't do it. And I'm not gonna admit to something that I did not do. Just like in the
3: Tibbs case in DC you heard about earlier, the judge holds a pretrial hearing about the firearms evidence. Odell's lawyers argue that it isn't reliable or valid. The prosecution's firearms analyst struggles to articulate an objective basis or methodology for his exam process. Instead, the court hears a familiar argument. Here's Nicholas Skurrich again.
7: What you're left with is A firearm examiner getting up there and saying, based on all of this experience, I'm right, and you should trust me.
3: And just like in the Tibbs case, the judge agrees with the defense. He will only allow factual observations that the caliber of the gun matches the caliber of the casings at trial.
6: What Judge Mossman ruled is that they hadn't demonstrated that there was anything more going on there other than a person looking at two things and saying, I think they match or I think they don't match. There, there wasn't any further scientific pursuit that was underlying that. And, and he he ruled that based on that, this was not something that he would be permitted to be called science in the courtroom.
3: The prosecution is not allowed to present testimony that the casings matched the specific gun. For the second time in a year, the science of firearms analysis has been successfully challenged. And in October of 2020, the jury finds Adams not guilty. But Odell doesn't go home. Remember how we told you earlier that federal prosecutors took over this case?
6: Typically, when the federal government takes over the case like that, what the state prosecutor will do is they will dismiss their case.
3: But instead of dropping their case, the state moved forward. That's unusual when a defendant has been found not guilty in a federal trial.
6: Through the federal proceedings, when the state kept the case, they went back to grand jury and substantially increased the severity of the the state case by adding an attempted uh, murder and attempted assault one charge.
3: If convicted of these new charges, Adams would face many years in prison.
4: I never thought that I would have to go to trial twice for the same incident. Never in my life. And people that I was telling that to, like the guards, guards and stuff, they was like telling me, like, you already beat your case. How, how come you're going to trial again?
5: I don't know. And they was just shaking their, their heads. It felt like, oh, hell no. You know, you all messed up. We're going to pick it up again and get it done right. So it felt like almost like this good old boy system and not really about the crime.
3: One interpretation of the motives behind the state trial has to do with precedent Remember what we talked about earlier, precedent is important because it can impact other cases in the future? So this time, state prosecutors brought two new firearms examiners to the pretrial hearing. One of them claimed his personal error rate was zero. Adams' attorneys, which now included John Robb, took the same approach as his federal defense team, arguing that firearms analysis isn't scientifically validated David Fegman also testified.
9: The judge ultimately decided, well, I'm gonna let the firearms examiner testify, but defense, you can put Fegman on as well, and he can testify to the limitations, and we'll just let the jury decide it. And so in the Adams case, which was unusual for me, I testified both to the judge of the preliminary matter to exclude it, and then I testified to the jury on how good a weight it should be given.
3: At trial, the two firearms examiners, each with an impressive resume, told jurors the cartridges collected at the scene were a match to the gun found at Odell's mother's house. They also openly acknowledged that they were, indeed, there in part as a response to the precedent set at Adams' federal trial. Here's the trial testimony from one of those examiners, Kate Todd.
1: As firearms and toolmarks examiners and even just forensic scientists... We follow admissibility hearings across the country. Any time that there is a ruling specifically about the science, we always want to go back and see why a certain ruling was made.
3: She claimed the issue was not a lack of science, but a poor explanation of it.
1: I'm not saying that the United States government did an insufficient job. I'm saying that the analysts did not explain the actual science correctly.
3: Firearms examiners like Kate Todd weren't the only ones watching Odell's case. In January 2021, the Department of Justice issued an unusual statement criticizing the PCAST report, a report that had been issued five years earlier. We've talked about PCAST repeatedly throughout this podcast and how it questioned the scientific validity of several forensic methods, including firearms analysis. The DOJ statement said, in part... Quote, "...formerly addressing PCAST's incorrect claims has become increasingly important as a number of recent federal and state court opinions have cited the report as support for limiting the admissibility of firearms tool marks evidence in criminal cases." And it references the cases of Marquette Tibbs and Odell Adams by name. Julia Layton. This is unsigned.
2: It has no seal. It doesn't explain who did it, why they did it. This appears to be sort of an effort by lawyers that didn't like the court's rulings to try and put something out under DOJ's label saying there was something wrong with PCAST and there's something wrong with these court decisions, rather than putting their names to it and filing it.
3: Back to Odell's trial. Aside from the firearms evidence, the state trial was a repeat of the federal one. Although this time, there were no black jurors, which Odell felt was a distinct disadvantage.
4: When they say a jury of your peers is people that's living in the same area that you're living in (laughs) and seeing the same things that you're seeing and going through the same things that you're going through, I got tattoos, I got braids, and I fit the description of being guilty behind that alone.
6: Ultimately, the uh, jury acquitted Odell of the most uh, serious charges. found that he was not guilty of the attempted murder and attempted assault one, but did find him guilty of the unlawful use of a weapon count and the other less serious charges, um, which was a a finding that they had believed beyond a reasonable doubt that he was the individual that fired those shots.
3: The jury believed he was the shooter. By the time of the verdict, he had been in jail for three years. At his sentencing, Adams spoke in court for the first time.
4: It's not. What the big picture is painted here upon me is like I'm just this bad person, which I'm not. It's been barriers that I had to climb over, and I'm steady climbing. And it's... Whatever happens today, it, it, it happens. I, I have been getting a bad end of the stick all my life. So I've, I've, I am like, like, how much more do a person have to take?
3: It's hard to hear, but Odell says he's not a bad person. He's just had the odds stacked against him all of his life. Odell had to serve two more years in prison on top of his time served. He was finally released in December 2021 in time to see family at Christmas. And for the first time, he was able to visit his mother's grave. His journey through the legal system represents both the past and the future. His state trial is rooted in a century of legal precedent established for firearms analysis evidence. His federal case represents the prospect for change and how that evidence is treated moving forward. Whether it's change the judicial system will accept remains to be seen. Odell Adams is appealing his conviction, but if he succeeds in winning a new trial, there's a chance it could end with an even harsher sentence.
4: I didn't do this, I'm innocent. Like. I have been accepting a lot of things and it's a time where you just get fed up. So that's why I appeal. And if I have to appeal again, I will appeal and I will keep appealing. And it's like when you are fighting the whole United States by yourself, it's kind of hard. It's hard.
3: Next time on CSI on Trial, blood stain pattern analysis used to wrongly convict a state trooper of murdering his family.
6: I, just repeatedly over and over, and I'm telling you, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong, he's wrong. I did not do this.
3: CSI on Trial is a co production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. Based on the Curiosity Stream series CSI on Trial, Created by Eleanor Grant and produced by The Biscuit Factory. You can watch all six episodes of the video series right now at curiositystream.com. This episode is hosted and written by me, Molly Herman, and researched by Katie Dunn and myself. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Jessica Metzger is the senior producer. Virginia Prescott, Jason English, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley Are the executive producers. Sound Design and Mix by Miranda Hawkins. Special thanks to John Higgins, Rob Burke, Rob Lyle, and Brandon Craigie. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans.